Hi, guys, and welcome to the Fail Fighters Podcast, a show that celebrates the art of learning from your mistakes. My name is Kerry James, and today we got Mr. Todd Gilmore on the show discussing the art of failing and winning at endurance sports. Todd is a professional engineer turned entrepreneur and Ironman athlete, qualifying for two Ironman World Championships and having raced in more than 13 full Ironman endurance events around the world, and he's only getting faster. Todd is also an Ironman certified coach and the founder of the highest profile endurance training institute in Vietnam called the Endurance Academy, which has produced several qualifiers and champions for endurance events throughout Southeast Asia and the world. Todd's latest mission is to compete once more in the Kona Ironman World Championships and to continue raising thousands of dollars for the Children's Charity Foundation's Newborns Vietnam and Heartbeat Vietnam. We have a lot of interesting topics on the plate today, including what it's like to transition from professional engineer to professional athlete, the toll that endurance sports takes on your family life, and the artful zen of managing a hobby that requires you to train for more than six hours a day and consume over 5,000 calories of food in one day. We also discussed the future of endurance sports and how to go to battle with who for many of us is the most difficult enemy of all, yourself. So without further ado, Mr. Todd Gilmore. All right, so how's it going today? Um, welcome to the show, Todd. Super glad to have you here. We've been talking about this for a while, so I'm glad we got you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself to the to the crowd, to the Fail Fighters, and tell them your favorite movie. What's your favorite movie? Uh, my name's Todd Gilmore. I'm a professional engineer come entrepreneur, and uh, you could say also a professional Ironman athlete in some cases as well. Uh, favorite movie, I would say, is Gladiator. Gladiator, interesting choice. Why, why that, that one? What, what uh... What about it do you like so much? I don't know. I think it's about the story from pain, from suffering, from champion uh, general to slave to champion gladiator. And uh, the death by honor may be okay, but not for me. Death by honor. It's all about the death by honor. Which makes sense considering the fact that you kill yourself. In, in that day and age, that was maybe appropriate. Not anymore. Yeah. The, the death by honor these days is Iron Man training. Um, which for some of you out there who, who's not super familiar with triathlons or our Ironman sports, um, an Ironman consists of, in every triathlon, consists of three sports. The first one being swimming, the next one being cycling like a bicycle, and then the third one being running. And Todd has a ton of experience in the field of triathlons. So um, I guess just tell us a little bit about how did you get started in, into triathlon sports and, and into the Ironman? The, the shortest version is when I was 32 years old, I was 93 kilos. And I decided to make a change in my life and uh, lost a lot of weight, went to the gym every day for five years, watched my diet, and it was a very boring existence because there was no goal, there was no uh, finish line per se, there was no medal, there was no uh, camaraderie, there was just me in a gym motivating myself to go to do exercise to basically manage my weight because I'm told by the doctor I should manage my weight because it's good for your health and because then you can live and spend more time with your kids. So around 2009, which would be probably seven or eight years later, through that exercise and episode of, of just managing weight, I entered my first triathlon. Mm -hmm. And that really stoked the engineer in me because it was a puzzle. It's three sports. Mm -hmm. It's not just running. You can't just be the best runner in the world and go and rock up to a triathlon and you're going to win. Not a chance because if you not understand the knowledge and how they affect each other and then you layer on top of that a nutritional aspect, throw that on top of get another pace aspect. And then when you get into Ironman, the distance 
it just makes for an interesting game for everybody, really, if you really do study it. And uh, the game is yourself. Uh, you're competing, to me, you're against only one person. It's me, myself, and I, and how well I can do. I've learned that after now 13 Ironman and 20-plus half Ironman and maybe uh, half a dozen other shorter-distance events. It's the most important fun is, is challenging Todd Gilmore from yesterday and making sure that even though now I'm 48 years old, I'm still getting faster. And I have honestly been able to do that in the last 10 years as well. I'm getting faster every year, not slower. When the doctors say I should be slowing down, I'm not. So that's fascinating. So, so you were basically, you were overweight. The doctor was like, you got to fix something, you got to change something. And you did the weightlifting and that just wasn't, wasn't cutting it for you. I was doing a mix of weights, cardio, a little bit of everything, just balance. Because mm -hmm. I found just doing weights and sitting doing nothing for, say, a minute between a set was just, to me, a waste of time. Excruciating, right? And just didn't enjoy it. Um, I've never been a bulked up guy. Ice hockey was my game when I was young and I got scars on both shoulders and operations to prove it. Um, which does compromise some of my swimming ability now because my one arm's about an inch shorter than the other. So I, you could say I do swim a bit to the left, <laughs> shorter arm, left. but I've learned to compensate all of it. Um, yeah, it just got boring, bottom line. And mm -hmm. even though, no matter what a doctor says to you, sometimes you just need some other goal, some other reason. Right. Um, everybody's a bit different, but you need to find your motivation. Okay, so finding your, your why, I guess you would say. Correct. Um, so you're ice hockey, so you're from Canada. Correct. Right? Where at in Canada? I grew up in a small town near the Rocky Mountains. So ice hockey, skiing uh, were the main activities in the, uh, in the winter. In the come spring, I'd always do track and field on residual ice hockey fitness. So I never ran any distance beyond probably a mile uh, for some, uh, 1,500 for others, meters that is. And my 1,500 time when I was young, I cracked just under five minutes, which is not bad for a 16, 17-year-old, but uh, not great by world standards. Um, I did make, the, in the province of Alberta, the, uh, the, the 4x100, or 4x400 relay in the, uh, the final eight. I was on the team that made into that. So, you know, it wasn't too bad. Didn't know, how, what I, didn't know I had an engine in me for endurance sports until I took them up at, uh, you could say, my mid-30s, even late 30s, or actually it's late 30s, early 40s that I took up endurance sports, that I realized I have uh, genetically, luckily, the, the, the lottery of genetics, um, I've got a decent engine, and obviously I, need to st I like to stoke that fire and push myself on that front. Okay, so it's all about like knowing yourself, and it's like figuring out these, these hidden uh, abilities, but at the same time, it was also because there was outside factors in your life that were like driving you. Correct. There was a lot of factors driving me into where I ended up, you could say, in the triathlon. So to come back to that first triathlon, I was nearly last out of the water and finished sixth overall out of a small field, you know, big fish, small pond. But needless to say, it was a local event and one that I could go back to. And straight away, I began to plot what my exercise regime needed to be. He started buying books on how to train and how to build endurance and how to gain strength and then realizing, wait, you need that strength. So I needed that gym work. And a lot of that gym work I'd already been doing was really relevant because to run well, you need to be strong in the core. To swim well, you need to be strong in the core. Right. To cycle well and have less fatigue and possible pain in your hands and shoulders, you need to strengthen the core. So core strength is really important, but I'd been doing that a long time already. So in some respects, the preparation led me to maybe more success. Um, and then the puzzle, like I say, you know, I was, I needed to learn how to swim. Right. And I had never swam open water until that first race. I was yeah. fearful, yes. 
but still confident I could do it. You know, it wasn't maybe my ignorance was bliss, you could say, um, because I could swim in a pool to the tune of 800 to 1,000 meters, and that's what the race was. I think it was about a 750-meter swim. Okay. So that first one was, was pretty important, you'd say. For sure. And not long after that first one, some mates and I, typical of you all do, and I was living in Asia, they were living in Canada, but we kind of made a pact because they'd already done a couple half Ironmen. They were going to do another half Ironman. So we said, well, if you train, I train. I'll register for this event, you register for that event. We can play with each other on email and others and make sure we're competently doing what we're doing. And I straight away registered for the Singapore Half Ironman, 70.3, when they used to do that. That would have been in 2010 was my first year for that. And my mates didn't do their event, but I did mine. I did all my training on a mountain bike. Um, and really just one of the first, after registering, and then when I got the receipt, it had the distances. And I was gobsmacked. I says, Gilmore, what did you just do? You've registered for a 1.9-kilometer swim, 90K bike, and a 21-kilometer run. I had never done any of those distances, standalone, let alone in one day, in my life. But I had eight, nine months to prepare. And okay. I was lucky enough to meet some people who could help me, got the right books, and just broke it down, like the engineer does and what my training, you could say, on the professional side had given me through that was to just break it down to a pieces and then start building on those pieces. Okay. So we'll take a step back. As you know, um, the fail fighters, what we're all about here is learning from your mistakes and learning from your failures, overcoming them in creative ways and, you know, in ways that make you succeed in the, the most, you know, at the highest potential. So you said you're an engineer in Asia. How did this even begin? Like you said, it was, it was peer pressure at first, huh? That it was your friends getting you into it. But um, what turned it from that to who you are today? Well, I think those, uh, the first three or four half Ironmen, um, the times were respectable. Mm -hmm. And I won't lay the times out, and it doesn't really matter, but they were very respectable. And I was like finishing 10th, 15th in my age group, just missing world championships, roll down slots, going, wow, this is interesting. I could go to a world championship. And I'd just taken the sport up on there a couple of years prior. But I was suffering from massive cramps, indigestion issues. Um, it was just difficult. And then I, I guess what really tipped it over to being where, hey, I can do this. I'd also put a lot of peer pressure on myself. You know, the worst thing you can do, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but you've got to be really aware and self-analyze or don't self-analyze if you know it's going to hurt you. But putting too much pressure on yourself to succeed, you can become your own worst enemy. And I think I was doing that. I was fit. I was trained. I was doing all the training. But then I was just killing myself on the races to the point that it was just a, a cramp run. I was still running 150, 52. And I was going, man, this is hard. But it was cramps were slowing me down because of the going so hard. And then I come down to dengue fever two weeks before a race. It was in Phuket, the race. I'd already paid the tickets, the entry fee, the hotel, the whole lot. And if you know the, an Ironman, it's not a cheap entry fee, you know, $250, $300, maybe $400, depending on when you register or what race. To fly to Bangkok and then on to Phuket to get a hotel, a day off work. I wasn't going to cancel the trip because of dengue fever. But at the same time, I went to Phuket with absolutely zero expectations. Mm -hmm. I was well rested. The doctor said I shouldn't go. And I said, well, what's the hazard if I go? And he said, well, if you're not recovered from dengue, you know, and bleeding and white blood cells and platelets, da, 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 anyway. Okay, so give me the pitfalls and I'll tell the doctor at the other end if I have a hazard. <laughs> and I went to the race with no expectations. 
and I come out of the water with a, I want to say 36 minute swim, fastest I'd ever swam to that point. And I was just, oh my God, wow, this is amazing. But I swam easy, but I swam straight. Straight, slow is better than fast, crooked. That was one of my first lessons I learned on that day. Second lesson when I got out onto the bike was the food I'd chosen for the day just didn't fit me right, didn't feel right. So my stomach kind of said no. So I stopped eating that and fed it to the monkeys in the, beside the road. And I had some other stuff that I picked up along the way at the aid stations. And at the same time, I held back and just rode and enjoyed the hills of Phuket. And Phuket's a really hilly bike course. And then when I come off the bike and park and you got to run, I felt really full of energy mm-hmm. to the point that I was just cruising, cruising. And I ran, I think I want to say about a one hour 37. So I'd beat my previous run time by 15, 16 minutes. And I finished feeling like a spring chicken. And it was so refreshing that to have cracked the puzzle but had so many lessons learned in one day. Some of it was tied to pressure, some of it was tied to pace, some of it was tied to um, uh, nutrition. That it was just a tremendous liberation that said, hey, now I need to go do the big distance. Okay, the so full you, Ironman. So you got a taste of it. That was, that was your first taste of like, this is something yeah but that took me that was probably my fifth event the first three in singapore were uh cramp fests you know i remember 508 ish to maybe 501 times on all three something in the middle you know they're decent times and then that phuket day even with the tough hilly bike i still i did 458 i broke my pb and two weeks earlier was laying in my bed for two three days of dengue fever so you broke your personal best with dengue fever, basically. Within two weeks of having dengue fever, I had a PB. So that was a, a lesson, I guess you could say, in itself right there. Is sometimes you're better off racing uh, if you've done the training. This is a key point. If you've done the training, you're better off um, 10% rested versus 1% overtrained. Overtrained taxes into your body in many, many ways in terms of also your medical state, your mental state. And some of that can be that extra pressure you put on yourself, and that's manifested itself out into heart rate and into effort levels, et cetera. And then it can be harder. So you're making things harder on yourself sometimes just by driving yourself harder in training. Okay. So as I'm, I'm curious, it's like so. So this is the first the first taste of Todd the athlete that we start seeing. What did Todd the engineer think about all this? I'm curious to to hear what his life was like at that time. Oh, Todd the engineer was having great fun. Yeah. Because this is in the day before I dis- before I discovered Training Peaks, for example, which is a software program that analyzes and tracks your fitness based on heart rate or wattage and time and duration. So I had an Excel spreadsheet, and you know engineers and Excel spreadsheets are are one and the same, aren't they? And uh, so I had an Excel spreadsheet for years that I tracked all of my effort levels, my nutrition, what I was eating and what I was drinking, and in terms of trying to figure out that puzzle where I could do a certain effort for a certain duration but not have a problem running or cycling. Because I suffered massively from cramps. Massively. My first five, six years of doing this this racing, especially in the heat of Asia, and I'm being Caucasian Canadian from a cold country, I sweat buckets. If people ride with me, you'll ever see. I've got friends who've called me the bulldog, not because of the bulldog attitude, that if you're behind me and I swing my head, you get wet from the sweat. <laughs> wow, okay. 
So moral of the story is stay ahead of you. Stay in front if you can or far back. <laughs> okay, so tell me about when you when you were doing engineering and that was like your full-time gig and it was this was more of a hobby, what kind of kicked it in gear for you to take this to the next level professionally? Um, one, I've never been a professional athlete. I've not been paid to race. I have raised a lot of money for charity along the way, though, through that. And my results in Asia would put me in the top quarter of a percent mm -hmm. in the world, not just in Asia. But I took up the sport, you could say, at too old to really be a professional athlete. Um, I'm fast, but too old. Gotcha. But what really got me going was the engineering side is was I came to Asia when I was 24 years old. Initially, it was a one-year contract. Um, nearing the middle to end of that contract, I found more work for our, the employer at the time, and they were surprised because they didn't think that work existed. So I've always had a high level of work ethic. I grew up on a farm, and um, that honesty and hard work ethic and uh, early hours were something that were driven in me from a young, young age. Um, and, and I wasn't shy to live without. You know, I grew up in the country where two TV channels was the norm, and one of them was usually crap on it and nothing there to really watch. So to me, outdoors and kicking a ball or swinging a ball or playing with your brother, mountain bike, whatever, I was always outside. And come out to Asia, and that two years turned into now 24. So I've been away a long time. Through that time period, I've lived through, you could say, four or five, I'm in the oil and gas industry, ups and downs. And in 2015, which would be in the middle of kind of some of my Ironman activities, um, the oil and gas industry, and it still is, it hit a huge recession. It's probably the biggest recession that's been in the oil and gas industry, and it's in the industry's history. So come the end of 2015, I, have, I was basically unemployed. And there was no work to be had. And if I went home to Canada, there would be nothing there as well. Because in Canada, it got hit worse because of some government policies and the fact that the Canadian oil is landlocked largely. Uh, it's in the, in the middle, of the, middle of the continent, per se. So there's not enough pipelines, et cetera, without getting into the politics of it. To go home to Canada would have meant competing for minuscule amounts of jobs with thousands of other professionals who are in the same situation as me. 20, 25 years experience, but how, who wants you? Because... They don't know if they need you because there's just so many people. So the province of Alberta has the highest unemployment in the country now. First time ever. So it was go home and say, would you like fries with that? Or reinvent myself. So the, the engineer in the study I did for all those years in Ironman and all those failures, which we can talk about later, you know, some of my first Ironman were tremendous in one case to absolute disasters in a few others. Um, and I've really had to learn to deal with failure on an event scale. When I say an event, I mean a one-day event that I've chosen to register in. To take all those lessons learned and all that reading, get certified to be an Ironman coach. And take that plunge, take that step into the entrepreneurial world and say, look, world, I'm going to be a coach. And I'll help you get to your finish line through my company, the Endurance Academy. And really in 2015, when I was still working, I took on the first level of clients envisioning the fact in 2016 there may not be a job in the oil and gas industry and that could be my only paycheck. Um, and it did turn out exactly that. By the end of 2016, there was no paycheck. 2017, oil and gas was zero for Todd Gilmore. 18 was very small, probably 15% of what I made in 2014. Um, similarly, in 19, it's been a little bit better, but not that great. And at the same time, though, the coaching business has grown. 
it's grown for myself and my company and my partner to where there is a level of income for three of us, but not enough far short of paying all the bills. For example, the kids and home leaves and travel and any of my own racing is still funded out of my savings. And so I still need the oil and gas business. However, I'm uh, still actively involved in coaching and wish to stay that way for a while because it's my hobby and I enjoy it. And I love seeing people and the look on their faces when they've gone through the process and finished. And of having lots of comments and lots of people come back to me later and when they finally did get to their finish line and say, wow, I couldn't have done it without you, Todd. And that helps me and that keeps me motivated as well. Okay, so it was like out of out of this challenging situation, you, you, you were faced with unemployment, basically. You're like, what am I going to do from here? You decided to open the Endurance Academy. Correct. The yeah. Endurance Academy to train people that were interested in getting involved as well, to get them to their uh, you know highest level that they could be at. From there, let's jump back into that, that near-perfect day in Phuket where you got out of the water or you got out of the... the finished the run at the end of it, did much better than you thought you could do. So then what did you do? The next step after that, I promptly signed up for my first full Ironman. And that first full Ironman would have been uh, about seven months later. Um, I continued as I always have, even in in that year of that event uh, in Phuket, I was still doing long, long bike rides because I had some mates that were training for a full Ironman. And they thought I was nuts because I'm riding 180 kilometer pleasure rides. For me, pleasure rides, for them training rides because they were doing an Ironman that summer. And they thought I was a little bit crazy just to tag along with them. And I just loved it. I enjoyed those long days on the bike. It was camaraderie of with uh, three other guys. We were four usually always. And we'd go out and do some really nice, lovely bike rides out into the north of the Ho Chi Minh City. And so I signed up for that first Ironman, and that first Ironman went uh, quite well because, one, I prepared very well. Uh, I did not work with a coach, but I did have done a lot of reading and had the mentorship from those guys from the year before. They, too, were also training for an Ironman in that same year. Uh, Again, that had been their second. So I was, you could say, one race behind them. And I heard all their stories, heard all their lessons learned. I had a good friend who'd done four or five other Ironmen as well. So I was chatting with him online. And I really took it all in. And I guess the most important thing I did on that day was, um, one, I was fortunate enough to work for a good company that uh, put some backing behind me with respect to a charitable contribution. So they matched every dollar that I was able to raise. So that gave me some incentive to advertise to people that, hey, I'm going to go do this event, and if you give a dollar, they will give a dollar. And in the end, they only matched the employees' contributions, which was great, still tremendous. Uh, We raised $12,000 for um, Heartbeat Vietnam that year. And that was really good. And and because of the preparation, I respected the distance, I guess is what I'd like to say. And in that respect of the distance, I held back. I held back and just went through the motions of making sure it was nothing more than a big training day. And I finished in a time of 10 hours 43. And at the end of that event, the euphoria of 10 hours 43, I'm like, wow, that's pretty damn good. You know, another hour and a half and I could have been first in the podium. And an hour and a half on Ironman, when you finish really good, you're thinking, oh, that's pretty easy. And so I really became a bit, I think, bulletproof in my opinion of how difficult or how not difficult an Ironman can be. Mm-hmm. Which then led to some of the other things we're probably going to talk about. Because the next three attempts at Ironman were far, far from perfect. 
Right, so that's jumping into that. So the fall from grace, I guess you would say. Yeah, like that you were on top of the world. <laughs> you did it. It was your second. That right? was first one, ten forty-three. Second one was in Frankfurt, and in I Germany. went there in Germany. And I went there with uh, six. We were six total. Five other guys, four of which were from Ho Chi Minh. We'd all trained together. We'd all did everything together except swim. Swim eventually. And ten forty-six. Keep in mind that's. What's the distances on that, just for people that That's a uh, 3.8-kilometer swim, um, so uh, then a 180-kilometer bike, and then a 42-kilometer marathon. The average finish time globally on the 50-something Ironman is around the 12, 12 and a half hours. So straight away in my first attempt, I put myself in the top 5%. Wow. Um, and I felt I could go a lot further faster. Mm. And I talked to a few people, maybe too big, too bold, and in that uh, second attempt, I had a tremendous swim, and the bike went okay, and I had a niggling, angling calf injury in about two or three weeks before, and it didn't feel too bad. felt okay. And at about a kilometer three or four of the run, it was like someone stabbed me or in the, in the calf. Like, literally, like they ripped the muscle right off of me. And I literally limped hobbled, I had compression socks on, put ice into that area, and it was completely iced down, and that didn't help. Somebody uh, gave me a Panadol all on the way, I didn't really help. But I hobbled, limped, because I'd promised many people, again for charity and my own personal pride, that I will finish this race. And I was not going to stop. And it was a tough day, because I got to watch uh, two of my friends went really, really good. And they had a little head-to-head -head battle that I was wanting to be a part of, and I couldn't. And that was a, a humbling experience. So my 38-kilometer hobble became a motivation for future events to keep going. You know, don't give up. And what was your time on that? 13.48. So you went from 10, 10.40, 10.30? Yeah. Top 5% in the world to 1348. To less than the average person. Way less. Wow. There was a 15-hour cutoff in that race. And that was part of my calculation on the day. I was lucky enough I swam well enough and biked well enough because my walk was that slow because of a damaged leg that I was thinking I wouldn't even make the cutoff. But I managed to get there to the end. That's insane. And that's, that's, that's the world of endurance sports right there. It's that like you, is. Can, you can be you know, just crazy top of your game yeah. one race. Top 5% in the world. And then the next race, one yeah. little thing can just get you, yeah. you know, and then, uh, back down to average. And that's, yeah. Number three didn't go much better. I was in the airport flying home on the end of number two, and I get a message on my phone from a different training partner in Ho Chi Minh City. Hey, Todd. The message was all excitement. You could just feel it in, the, in there. And he says, I just signed up for Frankfurt. Are you going to join me next year? And I just immediately felt there's unfinished business here. And yes, I'm going to sign up and do this again. And I did. I signed up on the spot. Within a half hour of receiving that message, I signed up again. And then I came back the next year, equally fit, if not fitter, and just had a bad day. I sabotaged my race in the week before on the wrong set of nutrition. And this is not a nutritional exercise, but it really does show how demanding uh, endurance sports can be. And the days before an event, Eating the wrong foods can really mess you up on race day. And I ended up vomiting on water and walk, jog, walk, jog, vomit, repeat. To the tune of the average man now, 
12 hours 18. So it's still way further back than what I'd ever felt I could capably do. So another day, another okay, one. Okay, so you got, what is that? One for one for three. One for three. One for three, doing well. And then number two was shit, basically. Yeah. Number three, not so much better. Yep. And then tell me about Kona. How did that happen? Kona come about now, fast forward a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting good at dealing with failure. And race number four was an utter rejuvenation in some respects, but a total failure in another. I come out of the water with a incredibly fast, for me, one hour, three minute swim. And then I jumped on my bike and it's been damaged in shipment, which I didn't detect the day before. And I had one gear. One gear for 180 kilometer on a mountainous Taiwan course. And I just let out screams, cusses, swears for about a minute or two. People around me must have thought I was nuts because I was not a happy camper when I jumped on my bike. And then I realized there's no point in screaming, yelling, and, and complaining. You've got two choices. Park this bike and go home and waste all the time and effort you did on training. Or ride this bike to the best of your ability and make sure you have something left to then run something that you've never ran before. And that's exactly what I did. So I went out and had a tremendous run that day. Um, to the point that I was running so well I forgot to eat and drink for the first hour. That caught up to me in the last hour, and in hindsight, I got myself up to second in the age group, which would have got me to Kona that year, and ended up ninth in my age group with a time then best of 10.35. So then the next time out of the blocks, uh, after that, I had not yet felt I could get to Kona, so I registered for a race in the sly. Okay. And, and Kona, just so people are aware, Kona is the, the world championships. World championships. Kona is the, the World Series, the, 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 the World Cup if you're a footballer. It's uh, the Stanley Cup if you're an ice hockey guy. It's the uh, Champions League if you're in soccer. and It's the place to go for triathlon. Okay. And, and amateurs can race that course the same as the pros. So triathlon is one of the only sports, if not the only sport, where you get to play on the same court as the big dogs. So you can compare and check your results with them, or you can compare yourself on the same course as them year on year. Which is, I think, really relevant for all the the entrepreneur fail fighters out yeah. there that are listening to this, that are that are out there. It's like just realize that although you might be just starting out in what you're doing, you're playing on the same field as all the other business people out there, all the other people that are starting their their project, whatever they're doing. You're out there with them. You're competing with them, and you can. You know, yeah. you can put yourself on that level. Um, just so people are aware, what's a typical, like, to train for an Ironman, what's a typical week look like in terms of the hours that you have to put in? A typical week, number one is I always plan one day of low to no activity. Okay. So yoga, Pilates, or zero, just rest, mm-hmm. family time, catch up on work, read a book, whatever the case should be. Then really midweek um, is that rest day. So the other four days of midweek for me are always in the morning, early, early. So it'll be a five o'clock get up with an hour and a half dedicated to training. So minimum hour and a half. Minimum day. on four days a week. And probably two of those days a week, I'll also do a second workout in the gym. Usually that's a strength workout at lunchtime, 40 minutes or something like that. Okay. Um, commonly in the morning will be one hard bike ride once a week, at least maybe twice along with a run and or swim. 
then the weekends can be, you could say, weekend warrior type training. So when I say weekend warrior, it's big. So you, you've got to, to train for a marathon, whether it be in an Ironman or a standalone, you've got to run long. So you've got to either run possibly in an evening, two, three hours, or you've got to run on the weekend, two, three hours. To train for a 180-kilometer bike ride, you've got to ride your bike a long time. So once a week, get out and ride, slowly building it up, 120, 130, 150, 180 kilometer type rides. So for most people, whether you're the average dude or not, you're looking at anywhere from a four to six hour commitment on a Sunday or Saturday to do that long ride. You're looking for a two to three hour um, commitment on a weekday or Saturday morning possibly for that run. When you stack it up, you're looking at kind of a general commitment for six to nine months of say nine to 10, 11, 12-ish the three, four months before the race, when you start adding up those long runs and those long rides, we'll get to 13, 14, 15. Um, when I've been the more professional athlete, I've pushed myself into the 20s and a lot of pros, hours, hours, hours per, week. per week. A lot of the pros are in the 22, 25 hours. And then you really get into some serious time. But at the same time, the older you get, you get into some serious recovery issues. So personally, I can only do one week like that. The next week has got to be about half that okay. because it's just too hard. Even if I'm fit, it's the recovery side of the game is the hard part sometimes. So when you're looking at endurance sports, especially in you know triathlons and Ironmans and all that, it's minimum 10 hours a week. Most likely. I would say 8 to 10 at a minimum. Okay. And you're going to have a 2 to 3 hour bike ride in there. So now you're down to 5, 6 hours for the rest of the activities. Okay, and then when you're starting to get in like the heavy, like the build-up phase of a training regimen, of a training, uh, you know, course, whatever, six months long, and you get in that build-up phase, what, what kind, how many hours are you looking at per week then? Again, you add up that, it's the long weekend where the, ad, the hours add. The midweek won't change. The midweek will still probably be four to six, mm -hmm. always, because you got to go to work. Unless you're an entrepreneur and you can manage your days or if you're unemployed like I was at times or if I'm coaching where I can do my own hours, then I can do more. But uh, generally, then your weekends add up. So your weekends, if you did a five-hour bike ride and a three-hour run, there's eight straight away, but you might have only done four earlier in the week. Okay. So it adds up to 12. Sounds like a lot, but it's really only packed into one weekend. Right. So around 12 hours is what you're going to be looking at. For sure. That's like a part-time job on top of your regular work that, you, that you're going to be doing. So it's like... Um, Fail fighters out there, if, when you're thinking about starting a new project, and this is something that you're going to be jumping into, this is, is very similar to the amount of hours that you're going to be putting in. It's a matter of like, where can I squeeze in that time? Can I go to the gym at lunch? Can I skip, you know, just talking, chit-chatting and, and bullshitting with friends at lunch to go and work out, to go work on that project? Correct. And it's you start to become strategic Correct. with how many hours in a week that you can do. Saturdays count, Sundays count. Those aren't off days. You gotta actually, if you're gonna be doing something like this, you gotta make your, your time work for you and your, your off time. You know? Yeah, well one of the things I would say, the commitment required for an Ironman is a lot, whether it be a half Ironman or not. It doesn't matter also if you're training for a 42 kilometer marathon. If you really wanna do well, you need to do the training. Okay. And to me, there's only two ways to do things. Do it well and correct, or don't do it at all. Take your pick. That's my view, and that's what I like to progress upon the people I coach. And my first question when I take on athletes is really to be asking you, are you prepared for these amount of hours? This is what you kind of need to do, this conversation. And if they're not going to do it, I may not want to coach you. But at the same time, 
in my personal experience, because I've been a professional, I've been a busy professional, I've been a coach, I've been uh, to world championships, these hours actually can help you prioritize your life if you choose to prioritize your life. You know, only you can correct you. So I can tell you the path, but only you can do it. So where do you find those hours? If you look at your daily plan, I'll bet you many people are wasting away 15, 20 hours a week right now. Sitting in front of a TV, sitting in front of a bottle of beer, sitting in front of a coffee cup, or commuting, or all of the above. So one of the easiest places to pick up these hours for training, in 2015, I was working in District 7, living in District 2. I rode a bike to work. I'd leave my house at 4.35. I'd get an hour and a half, two and a half hour ride in the morning, park my bike at, the, at a hotel across the street from the office, go to work, be in the office by 7.30, do a run at lunch, and then ride 30 minutes really easy home, and I'd be home by 5.30, evening off with the family. So is that, at, that, at that point, you gotta become kind of like a scheduling ninja. You, it, it really forces you to be that scheduling ninja. You are 100% correct, uh, Kerry. So you said, uh, you said before, so it's like when you're doing this and you're actually prioritizing your time, that you start to unlock other uh, time slots. Correct, you free up that time in my view because you're so, you, you have to become focused on what you need to do. And you're, the best way to pick up those hours is actually commuting. So once a week, I would run home from that District 7 as well. And I would take a tortuous route, and I'd turn that run into a 15 to 20 kilometer run on the way home. You know, I could be out of the office at 5, 5.30, changed in the, on the road with the running shoes on by 5.30, quarter to 6. And now I could be home by 7, 6.45. Dinner's waiting for me on the table. Kids are waiting for me. Sometimes I'd leave a little earlier, maybe 5.15, take a direct route home, be home 6.15. If I'm going to sit in a car from District 7 that time of day, the fastest I ever made it was 55 minutes. The slowest was an hour and a half. I could run the most direct route in an hour and 10, hour and five. Okay, and that's when, when talking to, to athletes like this in the past, I've heard that while at the same time they're spending a lot of hours on their training, that they're also able to actually, they find themselves getting more done in the rest of their life. Why do you feel that that's? I think because you, be, you have to become more focused on everything you're doing. To really be to do well at Ironman, you have to also do well at your other events and your other areas of your life. You don't want to, when you take on and sign up for a marathon, an ultra run or an Ironman, you should be building better relationships and building a better you, not tearing that you down. So if you sign up for an Ironman and you're going to say, I'm going to go do that. Now you've taken the first step. But if you don't see your spouse because you're in the car for an hour a day each day and then you're trying to squeeze in all this training and now your spouse starts knack, knack, knack at you, you might have signed up for the wrong thing. You might have bit off too much that you can chew because you're not spending enough time at home. That same pressure can come from your boss at work. If you're the owner, maybe your employees see you're not there and then they start, you know, when the boss is out, the mice play. So there's different ways to look at it. But if you get laser focus on the priorities and then find those loose hours and the best place to find them is actually getting your getting into bed at an earlier hour you know my kids i was a single dad for a lot of this training my kids go to bed 7 38 dad's in bed 8 8 30. why because then i can get up at 4 30 very easily people wonder how the hell can you get up at 4 30 in the morning well if you went to bed at 8 30 you still got eight hours sleep no trouble 
but now I can do 4.30 to 6.30 training. Just because I went to bed early, I turned the TV off, I put the phone down. I got all my stuff done that I needed to do in that 5.30 to say 8.30 time with the kids, homework, et cetera, maybe things, some online banking, whatever the case should be. You really get laser focused to those priorities. What is important? And start throwing away the clutter. So the takeaway there really is that how you do one thing is how you do everything. Correct. You have to then build layer upon layer upon layer in your life is what I describe it as. Um, and you've, you've got to just zero laser focused. Uh, Atomic Habits is a book I've recently read and it's those little steps every day on what's real important is what builds great relationships and what builds great companies and what builds great individuals. Um, I long ago gave up an aspiration of being a millionaire. You know, I'll, I'll retire okay, I'm not too worried about that. To me, life is more about the quality that I lead daily and making sure the relationships I have and the people I touch remember something special about hopefully that moment or that bike ride or that relationship. So I try, I'm an open book is what I like to tell people when I'm, a, when I'm your coach. And I've been a mentor to a lot of young professional engineers and I'm the same thing there. I'll drop everything I'm doing to help you if you give back the effort level that is expected from that conversation. If you don't want to come back to that conversation, that's fine. Maybe I planted a seed that'll germinate years later. That's fine too. But I'm gonna share at every opportunity. Okay, and that's, I, I think that's really powerful. Um, we've talked, a lot, or talked about it before, but this concept of keystone habits, and I think they actually mentioned this in the book, Atomic Habits. It's uh, what's the one thing you can do that you can ensure you do that kind of locks everything in place. It's like a keystone. And for you, it sounds like the, that, you know, the, the Ironman training was that keystone habit. It's like once you got that figured out, things just started to unlock in the rest of your life as well, right? With that in mind, jumping back to right before you uh, qualified for Kona. You did race one, two, three, and then four, I believe. Yeah. Four. Four was still fail. Actually, no, I better get a PB, I think, around then. Number five would have been um, Ironman Lankawi round two. Round one was a DNF, the one I did on the slide. Maybe it was six. I can't remember exactly. And I actually wasn't aiming for Kona. I just went there to raise money for charity. Oil and gas business was going down. I was still working, but I was not anticipating to be working the year after. In fact, my wife and I had a very serious conversation about not even going because the finances were needing to be pulled. You know, the purse strings needed to come in a little tighter. Should we even go to this race? And we chose as a family to go. And that's another, I think, important part about any process and any journey. Whether your spouse is working or not, whether your children, uh, what you do with them. But I've always grown up from and worked with my children and my wife as being, you know, we need to do things together. If we're not in it together, we shouldn't be doing it. And if that includes my hobby. So we made that choice to go anyway. It was part holiday, part race. So there wasn't a lot of expectations on myself because of the, the way we went. And then lo and behold, I had a really good day. At the time, I beat a PB only by one minute. However, when I was in the recovery bath and my son's right across, 
like you and me, but there was a fence between us and I'm talking to him and he had my phone and he gets a friend from that same gentleman that I used to train with on the guy I did the 2000, the third, the second Frankfurt where I had the huge failure. Great friend, love the gentleman. He sends me a message to my phone that my son says, hey dad, you qualified. And my son was so excited because now he got to go to Kona. Unfortunately, because the oil and gas business has dropped, I haven't been able to take them. So I still got one unchecked level of business is take my two boys to Kona because only one has been there and my wife has been there. My dad's been there. And two trips I've gone to Kona by myself. Okay. So I still got to go back. There's unfinished business, which we can certainly, if we can squeeze it in, I can talk more about some of that unfinished business because Kona round trip, Kona number one was my dad, my youngest son, who was a baby at the time, and my wife. And I shaved 38 minutes off of my time. That was number one. So you, so you got the text, or you, you saw? I got the text. You're sitting after this. After the race, I didn't even know that I'd qualified, and it was yeah. just like, wow, just this pure joy you could say come across it. Wow. I finished fourth in my age group, and the way Ironman does the allocations to the uh, to the World Championships, every event gets a number of slots, and then each age group, because you're racing by age group in five-year brackets, based on uh, a bell curve of number of participants in each age group, every age group gets one slot, and then they allocate by bell curve more slots into other age groups. So in my age group, there was five slots. I finished four, so I got one. The next year, I went back to Langkawi. I finished third. Next year, I went back to Lankau, we finished second. So there's maybe one more unfinished business as well as get first. Okay, so Lankau, you're, you're gunning for it. Um, not this year though. Right. <laughs> it's a month away and I'm not fit enough. So for the, the one that you qualified, the first one that you qualified for, what happened after that? What was that like? Because at that point, you weren't even you weren't even trying, but then you found out all of a sudden that, that you can go to the, the World Series yeah. of Ironman sports. So it was 2016, uh, oil and gas business was effectively zero for me. Coaching business was just getting going. So I was reinventing myself as a coach and an athlete. I was a player coach, you could say. So I was playing the game, doing everything, walking the talk, talking the talk, and doing everything I could to get fit, stay fit. And one of the other equations of the Ironman world and speed, and I won't get into the technical side of it, is watts per kilo. Basically... Your engine's only so big. doesn't matter how big and how strong you are. Your engine is so many watts. And the lighter you are, the more watts per kilo, the faster you can go. So I was working on that equation through some really focused effort on diet and nutrition, knowing I could get a lot faster. When I went to Kona round one, um, I was the first individual who trained, you could say, and took up the sport in Vietnam to go to Kona. And I didn't realize it when I went to Kona, but there was a lot of people who knew I was going. A lot of people knew, starting to know the company, Endurance Academy. And my phone, when I finished the race, was unbelievable, the amount of messages and comments I had from people. But the most exciting part of the day was the finish. Because uh, I knew from previous experience, don't advertise. Advertise for charity, yes. But don't advertise your goals because then somebody says whether you finish your race in 12 hours in the, in the Ironman or you finish your marathon in four. If you advertise you're going to do four and you do 401, you had a great day. But your friends are going to tell you you failed because you did 401. Okay, so How you phrase the question, how you phrase the goal can really define your mindset.
And the mindset needs to be correct in life, with your children, and in your race. So how you phrase the goal and who you tell the goal can really make a big difference on how you train and how you perform and how, you, how easy or not it is to get out of bed in the morning to do the same thing again, whether it be your training, your life, your children. And you need to look everybody in the eye, honestly, every day, I hope, and say, I've done a good effort today and I can go to sleep and I'm going to sleep well because of that good effort. So when I finished that first race, I always felt I could go under 10 hours. And I went 9.56 that day. That was the fifth? That was probably number six or seven, probably seven. So I went 9.56. So from that first Ironman, it took me four more years of pounding that pavement to really break out. And it was a tremendous feeling. And it was, wasn't even expected, right? It, there was only two people who knew. I told my wife and my dad. Nobody else knew what I had in my mind, and I executed a perfect day that day. I don't think I could have went on that day any faster. I've gotten faster since because I've learned. But at the same time, I respected the distance, the heat, and the effort of Kona. Kona consistently in the World Championships, when they rank Ironman events, is the top three, top two. It's always ranked one of the hardest Ironman you can do in the world. So the Kona is the one that you got nine. Correct, 9.56. So I busted out. I ran on that day a three hours, 21 marathon, which was the 115th fastest out of 2,500 people, including a professional field of 75. So I was in the top 50 in the amateur ranks on the run. And that's still something very proud. I ran a Boston Marathon qualifying day. I, I, it takes time. It takes practice. And it takes an understanding of a lot of processes when you get to that level. And the priorities that we've talked about and the building, it took, I would say, four to six years to really understand and comprehend all of that aspect. And I bring that to my coaching business. I try to bring it to my daily life now as well. So continuing a bit on that. So then four weeks later, after Kona, the bug is there. I want to go back to Kona. So how do you go back to Kona? you got to qualify again. As an amateur, only if you finish number one in the world do you get an automatic ticket to go back. That's something I don't think I'll ever get unless I'm lucky enough to stay really fit and be a 62-year-old or something and win my age group. But that's maybe another goal to be had. So four weeks later, I went back to Ironman Langkawi. And on a, f a bunch of residual fitness, I qualified third in my age group. And... You can't see photos in a podcast, but if I showed you the photo, it is, uh, I fell down on the correct side of the finish line. Literally, I hit my watch and the gas tank was completely empty. And that's something we were talking earlier and we can get into it again because year two in Kona, which is another really interesting story because the second time I went back to Kona, you know, I'm fit, fitter, a year wiser lighter watts per kilo had done a lot of homework on a lot of fronts related to speed and i had five flat tires so you went from this first long time before that first ironman failure 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 step up qualifying for kona 
Then you went back to Kona. Second year in a row going to Kona. Yep. Second year in a row. It had two times now under 10 hours. Which and is, again, top 5% in the world. Top 1% now. Top 1% in the world. Maybe, maybe half a percent. That same year of the five flats, I uh, won my age group in uh, Cebu in the Ironman uh, 70.3 Asia-Pacific Asia Championships. Okay, so you went, so now you're at the second Kona. Yep. And how did that, well, tell, tell me about that day. How did it start? Preparation went great. Everything was fine. I was feeling like a million dollars. Um, did everything I did in the previous years and more um, using the products I knew at the time, uh, Lila, uh, Lila Exogen, which is weight training while you train, etc. And the swim was good, no problems, no issues, come out of the water feeling good, jumped on the bike, uh, and I, right pretty much at kilometer 90. Everything is going well. I'm on pace for what I felt to be a very good time, beating my previous year by 15, 20 minutes, as long as I could do what I thought I could do. And bang, the sidewall blew out of my tire. And not, I'm not talking the inner tube, I'm talking the outer casing tire. And put another tube in, boom, it blew up. So now I've got one left, only brought two. So to make a long story short, that one got me about another 50, 60K because I had a tire boot without getting the repair process. I got out of that. I walked with my bike about two kilometers. Fortunate enough, there was an aid station where they handled the water and they had a repair kit. So I patched up the two tires that were patchable and they had a track pump. So that got me rolling after flat three. Flat four was again, happened to see an aid station walking another couple of kilometers. Flat five, they have neutral aid. At the World Championships, they have neutral aid, and the guy gave me a new front tire. But I was only 11 kilometers from the finish. And I'd been on the bike at that point for about six and a half hours when I figured I was capable of five. So my good time was gone. The day was over. However, and that's something I like to say when you go to an Ironman, have your plan A. Have your plan B, have your plan C, and then have your pity party, have your crying, air efforts, whatever, you know, all that training. Think of all the people who supported you and then just get on with it. So at that point, it was just get on with it. So I got onto the run saying, I'm going to see how fast I can run. And I ran the first half in an hour and 32. And then about kilometer 28, 29, I just spectacularly blew up, just felt terrible. And I knew I was going Ironman Langkawi in uh, five weeks to qualify again. That was the goal, just like the year before. I already registered, already had the training done, had the tickets and the plane tickets booked. So I said to myself, after blowing up and not getting that really fast, fast run, well, let's just walk jog to the finish, save some energy. Because the year before, I ended up in the medical tent because of ex exhaustion. And I was going to go back and do the same thing five weeks later. So I knew if I saved some energy, I may be better at the next race. So you could say you, I lost that battle to win the next one. And I, and I, I finished, of course, uh, 11 hours 50 or something like that, which is well over, say, two hours beyond what I expected. And collected that medal, raised a bunch of money for charity again, and then began the rebuild process to go to qualify again, which I subsequently did and um, went 9.52, a new PB only five weeks later. Felt like a million dollars. And Ended up in the mid-tent again, though, which is, uh, we can talk about it if you wish. Um, you know, when you do endurance sports, your internal organs are something you don't feel. 
we can feel our muscles, we can feel our tendons, we can feel our bones if they're damaged. But if we maybe, I've never had cancer, hope I never do, but generally you cannot feel your internal organs. Certainly not after an Ironman or after any other event or just a day-to-day episode. And a blood test will tell you what's wrong. And I had some seriously messed up blood work. I ended up in the hospital overnight uh, and an IV drip, et cetera, and doctor observation for about four days after the event. And it was just exhaustion is what it amounts to. And it was, you, you finished feeling fine. Finished feeling fine. Outwardly appearance, I looked like a million dollars. It was actually kind of comical when I went to the doctor here in Ho Chi Minh after arriving from the airport, because the Malaysian doctor said, go straight to the doctor and get this test when you get home. So I had this little paper and I go to the, the, the clinic and the night duty doctor at the clinic is a guy I cycle with. What the hell are you doing here? I saw your results in Langkawi. He was so excited and we talked about the race for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then I showed him the paper. Oh, wow. Let's get that going right now. So, you know, the, 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 your, your system goes through a lot of stress. And the preparation for that stress is all the training a guy does. And that zero laser focus becomes very important to make sure you don't have to go do that medical trip, hopefully. Yeah, and I think it's, it's having any kind of lofty goal. It's on the outside, you're seeing them succeed and you're seeing them kick ass. But who knows what's actually going in? <laughs> on their on their actual organs or on their on the inside of what's happening. So um, I think that's it's a really good lesson to to attest to. It's like the the doctor friend is, is super excited for you, but at the same time you're in his office. And why is that? And it's uh, sometimes you, you just gotta you know take care of yourself in that regard. So you were you were sitting there, you're finished with Lankawi, qualifying again for Kona, and what did that lead to today? Well, 2018, um, the oil patch picked up a bit, so I had to work to pay for my kids' school fees, which led to what I would say not the best training quality that I had in the years previous. Because when I'm on, uh, I tend to go offshore to a rig. So when you're there, you have uh, I have a 20-foot container with a treadmill, a rowing machine, and a bike. But because of the hours you work, the most you can get is a couple hours. So. If anybody's done a marathon or the marathon training, you know that you have to ramp up your distance and your time on running gently. You should, or you run the risk of an injury. And I picked up a couple of feet problems, one on each foot, different problems, but on one on each foot, into Kona. Managed to feel okay through all the training, but on race day, my body broke down. Um, so I, I finished the day, again, ran really fast, had a great bike, had a good swim, but when I started running, I ran very fast, 134, I think, for the first half. And around, again, that 28, 29 kilometer mark, the, the pain was just excruciating. I had a broken metatarsal, uh, if you know where that is on your foot. So trying walking, let alone running, um, was, was difficult, to say the least. And it was just a suffer fest thereafter. But again, there was no way I was not finishing. So it was, failure was not an option. Again, I had advertised, I told my friends, I'm going there to raise money for charity. The time to me now is a personal number only. What's important is the finish and that I know I do the best I can do on the day with the conditions and with the terms and with the equipment of what I have. And I'm also now mature enough to know that if I don't have the best preparation to dial back my expectations so that that goal that I phrased about earlier is a win goal because you don't want that goal to be a fail because that keeps your motivation up. 
just like that 401 versus four hours. If you don't tell your friends you're going to do four, four hours, the 401 is awesome. And if you just tell them you're going to finish, and then you just confide in one personal friend or somebody you know you can trust, like a spouse or girlfriend, best mate, make sure they don't tell anybody. That's fine. Have one or two people, but you don't want to advertise too far beyond because then it's outwardly success, not inwardly fails. That's very powerful. That's so powerful. It's like the, and having done this before having trained with you, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that you don't want to blast out too much because then you have that, this, this extra, you know, pressure on you that's not real. It's just out, it's, you know, it's social. But what really matters is the expectations you have for yourself inside. It's, it's you know, yeah. not about what all the other people are, are expecting. And it's, in, in general, you know, it just sounds like it's much better to uh, stay humble in that regard. Correct. 100%. You know, e even the professionals. And I've be be been very fortunate through some of my other activities. I'm, I, I've done race director job for three of the Ironman in Vietnam, 70.3. And I've got to meet some of the professionals. And because I'm going to Kona, but I'm also a race director in one of the races, I have got the pleasure of spending a lot of time with these pros, even in Kona, as well as in Da Nang, and so then I go to these other events. And some of them are tremendous, tremendous people, because at the end of the day, Ironman is a common fraternity, per se, or sorority, depending on your gender, if you're American. But needless to say, it, it's a badge of honor. And everybody does the same course. Everybody has trained, because if you don't train, you don't finish. Um, or you've had other issues possibly in the day that mechanical sickness, illness, you know, like I've talked that prohibit you from finishing. Or you just suck it up, like I've just said. In my cases, I've been fortunate enough to finish uh, all but one Ironman I've attempted. But you have to live to fight another day. You know, sometimes you lose the, the battle, but win the war. And when you're competing amongst yourself and yourself only, the war never really ends. You know, it's, it's a lifelong journey where this process becomes a regular habit, which in my case this year, because of some of what we've just talked about here, this year I've had the common question of, what are you talking about? What's your next event? Uh, I'm not registered for anything right now. And I get a lot of gobsmacked looks at me. Hey, what, Todd's not racing? And I'm not. This year I have not had the time, one, I focused on family, you know, different priorities. I'm focused on the Endurance Academy, my partner, uh, and my health. It's, my health has not been bad. You know, I have no injuries, per se, other than the, what I described about my feet. Uh, but I've been going hard for a long time. I've done 13 Ironman in six years, seven years. I've done uh, 45 other events, something like that. So it's... Uh, it's a reset year. I read a very good article uh, by Cameron Brown. Cameron Brown, I'm 48, Cameron would be 45, and when he was 41 or 42, he won Ironman Cans. He's the oldest ever Ironman winner. Um, and he credits his success in his 40s to an injury he had a few years earlier where he was forced to take six months off. For three months, the doctor said, you cannot do anything but let it lay on a couch, walk. Nothing. He was forced into rest. And that, he feels, gave his body a really bit of a reset. So I'm kind of hoping that reset mode for me right now, and it's maintenance mode, it's manage, it's take care of other priorities, yeah. to then pick that next big day, tell my wife what my goal will be, and then go succeed. 
And if it ends up being a flat tire day or other reasons, I can live with it. So you've worked with a lot of different people before and you decided to become a coach after you experienced, like you said, you were being mentored by some other people. So um, what's, what's the reason that you should have a coach versus just like getting on YouTube and things like that? So the power of coaching. My uh, first qualification of a world championship, I qualified on my own, but I knew I would had reached a plateau. I, I was on a plateau and I'd been there for a while and some of the mental game and some of the mental struggle I've described with you and, and, and anything in life, it's, it's as much physical often as it is mental. And the coach helped me prioritize a little bit on what was the most important things to do. They helped tone me back. They helped hold me back because I was pushing too hard. I was go, 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 go when in fact I should have been a little bit backed off on some days or resting some days. Um, and the coach with discussion gave me more perspective and gave me more uh, options, more, more vi it broadened my vision, you could say. You know, I had a bit of blinders on. I'm, a, I'm that type of person. And it, it, he got me, I was with him for three years and I even used him while I was still a coach for the first year. And I told him I was very open, honest with his with the relationship. We had a really good relationship. He's still a friend. And... I, I just appreciated the fact that he, he helped me a lot. He's a, he was a cancer survivor, uh, a young, much younger gentleman than me. Uh, he was also 12-hour time difference. So we, we had to work around that. And he, and he gave me a lot. And I think he gives a lot of his clients a lot. And uh, I've since referred a few people in North America to him. Um, and that helped me. The coach relationship really got me off of plateau, got me to open up my eyes broader, look at more things, slow down, you could say, and smell the roses a bit, rather than just rush past them. Okay, and what's, what's the average person have to gain from hiring a coach? The coach should be giving you some priorities so that you don't have to. You know, we're busy people. You know, I, I had a coach when I was a, a professional engineer, and that helped me know what was the priority. What were the tick boxes? What should I be doing? And that laser focus then can help you compartmentalize that process or that process for the Ironman or for the run. So you're, you, just, you get a schedule given to you. You work with him. You WhatsApp, you email, whatever the case shall be, or her, your coach, and you get that schedule that fits hopefully around your life. And if it doesn't fit around your life, get it to fit around your life or talk to the coach on how to make it fit around your life. And then they should be planning that for you so that you don't have to worry about it. Your objective is to then just execute that workout or execute that activity, whatever it should be. So now you just have to go get it done versus you don't have to do the planning. So it takes away some of the hours. Like when I started out without a coach, I did all my own reading. Uh, I wasn't the big internet guy, you know, I come back, I'm old, you know, I'm 40, 48 now. So the internet was just getting going when I was actually a professional. So I, had, I did the old school books and I learned a lot from those books and studied and read had my own spreadsheets and did my own planning, did my own everything else. So I sat down a couple days a week to either to read or plan. So that whole process, I would say, was a two, three-hour process. Some of it pure enjoyment, some of it burden. And that can be reduced through the coach avenue. So certainly there's some hours of a day or week to be saved via the coach. At the same time, when it comes race day, that week or two of racing, the taper process and being ready for the race, the nutrition, the pacing, all of that, especially if you're a beginner, um, your chances of exceeding your goal that you and your coach and your spouse are the only ones who know what the goal is, 
are much, much greater. And I've seen some tremendous successes with some of the, uh, it doesn't matter if I'm the coach or other people are the coach. You know, to me, not everybody needs a coach, not everybody wants a coach, but at some point, I think everybody does use a coach for a little while and there's something to be gained from it, for sure. Um, so it's, it's um, I mean, in, in many different areas of life, like coaching is, is it's, it's a tool to help people accelerate their progress. And Correct. And hopefully, especially in my case, and I know through many other coaches like me, uh, I've had the luxury of meeting some uh, Ironman uh, master coaches, uh, two of the four actually, and have lunches, dinners, and coffees with them, and they're tremendous gentlemen. Um, but they've, they're exposed to, like myself, a lot of different athletes, whether they were a racer or not. If they're a racer like myself, they've been exposed themselves to the same process that you're signing up to do. So one of the big jobs of a coach is, is actually making sure you don't fail. You know, some of my failures were from my own stupidity. Uh, when I say stupidity, I mean that tire, five flats. I'll tell you right now, I lost track of how old that tire was. And if you're going to invest thousands of dollars and hours and hours and hours of time to go to a race, spend the $100 it is to buy a new tire the two weeks before the race and put it on. Because now you don't have to worry about that flat tire. And if you do have a flat tire on that day because of a brand new tire, or I shouldn't say because, but you have a brand new tire, it's probably beyond your control, that flat tire. And it would have happened anyway. So just suck it up and move on. Fix it and finish. So preparation is key. Preparation is the key. Um, the seven P's. Piss poor planning, plan for piss poor performance. The seven P's. I'm going to keep that one. I'm going to take that away. I love that. Piss poor planning. Plan for piss poor performance. Okay. So plan for piss poor performance. That's You heard it here, guys. Um, so your network, right? A lot of people, when they're just starting out in business or they're just starting new projects and things like that, they're... Hearing they, they got naysayers everywhere. They got people telling them they can't do it, or they have their friends that are lazy, they're on the couch. Um, and I know that I, I've talked to a lot of endurance athletes before, and they say it's almost like a cult-like experience being a part of like Ironman or being a part of triathlons. And basically, can you attest to that, that it's like, what, what happens when you go from being an overweight engineer to all of a sudden entering this world where people are not ordinary? Like people are not the typical, you know, getting drunk on a Friday night kind of crowd. And then how can people, you know, what, what kind of takeaways can the average person, not even the, the person trying to be an athlete, how does that fit into their life as well? Like what kind of people should they be hanging out with? And, and, and you know, is, is that important? Well, only you can change you, number one. So you really have to, the takeaway I would say is you have to evaluate where you want to be um, next year, 10 years, and possibly even 20 years away. So in my case, I was on the wrong path. I had was overweight, largely I would say because of alcohol and lack of activity. I was doing some activities out late at night, you know, da 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 da, drinking and stuff like that. Not good for social family relationships. Maybe fine for a few friends that are in that same uh, mindset, but it's not a healthy path. And then I had to make a choice, really, to oh wait, this is fun, this is interesting, but I can't go out at night if I want to ride my bike at five in the morning not a good combination you know you need rest and so I just had to make that personal choice and it became a very easy choice when you have two young boys who are waiting for you to get up and do something um, or wanting to do something because they're young boys and whether you got a girl or a boy or a spouse you know to me that was one of the significant motivators was it was a good example as well 
you know, are they seeing me coming in from the morning? They might just stumble to their bedroom from uh, getting ready for school. And I've been in the pool. We live in an apartment building, and I'm walking in. They see me all soaking wet. Oh, Daddy, you swam. Yes, I swam. Oh, Daddy, you went running, and you know, you're covered in sweat. So it, it, I feel it gave a, a good example for them by me being able to do that kind of stuff. Versus some years before where I may have, and I know I did it, where they might have done something a little bit in the morning, you know, maybe they dropped something on the floor and it made a bunch of noise, or maybe they weren't getting ready quick enough for school, and I'm hung over, and you snap at them, and then you realize a few minutes later, like they're just kids. Kids make mistakes, and you snapped not because they made a mistake, but because you were out. And you had a few drinks that you shouldn't have, and you got a bit of a headache, and you want it quiet, and you're a little bit impatient because you didn't get enough sleep. Um, and once or twice like that, I caught myself, and I really just said, whoa, this is this not the dad I want to be. Um, I don't ever remember my dad doing that to me, and I did not want to go down that path. Um, and there was other issues in the relationship at the time with my wife, and now we did end up getting divorced that we won't get into. But, you know, that relationship, you could say, and partly was doomed for failure, because, partly because of my habits. I'll take it full on board. If anybody knows that relationship, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man. I'm own up to that mistake. Um, but at the same time, I've done my best to be the best father I can be for the two other boys. And now I've got a third one with my current partner. Okay, so when you first started out, you were hanging out with, you said you had a crowd of friends, and it went from like your your old, you know, working buddies to all of a sudden you were hanging out with these guys. And what changed when you started hanging out with these guys that were doing these crazy 150, 160 kilometer cycles, uh, rides every week? They, um, the, the, these gentlemen, and I obviously won't name them for case whatever reasons, but they, we, we all came from different walks of life, different countries. Different nationalities, of course, different parenting, different uh, upbringing, totally. We were all, I would say, professionals uh, in, the, in our own right uh, of chosen careers. But they, they were examples for me as well about that laser focus. We all had children and we all, they prioritize. You know, there was things where, hey, I'd say sometimes let's go for, let's go for a beer Saturday night. And, and quickly the answer was, I'm getting up in the morning to bike ride. Aren't you joining us? I don't want to have a beer because I might be hungover. Or the answer was, no, I'm with my family that night. So it, it was after a couple questions like that, you know, those old habits died quickly and easily because they were a very good group. Um, and like I say, we were, we were uh, out of the four, I'm thinking of five, uh, two were of one nationality and, uh, and the other guys were uh, different countries and we were from all different continents. In fact, out of those five, we were from three different continents. And only two were in the same industry. So we were from completely different walks of life. We were all in the same age group. And it was just the right time, you could say. And I was fortunate enough to find that good example. Um, on the coach side, in some cases, especially to some of my younger clients, I joke with them that I'm actually sometimes more your life coach than I am your endurance coach because I've done a lot. And some of that comes back to some of these guys as well, is that, you know, they were good examples. You know, I've been at this now 10 years uh, and I'm gonna continue doing it for a long time to come. Yeah, and that's just, it's, it's 
crazy how powerful um, fail fighters out there that, that you really are. You are the five, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, be that with your coach. Be that with your you know your friends that are going out and drinking all the time. Whether you like it or not, you're going to be picking up their habits. You're going to be doing the things that they do just by association. So by surrounding yourself with other people that have similar lofty goals, similarly, similarly ambitious goals as you, you can hack the system. You can change those habits. And like you said, Todd, that it's, it's actually easy once you start surrounding yourself with people like this to do amazing things. And, and I can attest just from, from doing, you know, uh, one half Ironman uh, under your, your guidance, of course, uh, was that just when you're hanging out with these people there, you know, like you, you go all of a sudden from being like, you know, grabbing drinks and, and happy hours and stuff to all of a sudden you're, it's totally normal for you to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning yeah. and go run around with these 20 other lunatics that are just like, you know, doing 150 kilometer cycles through the mountains and all this. It's like these things become normal. But what you got to do first is you have to put yourself in that position. You have to be able to you have to you have to make the conscious decision to be around these people so correct and and it believe it or not it in many people's case and definitely in my case signing up for such events as what we're talking about has actually balanced my life you know it's made it i would say easier at the same time more complicated but it's given laser focus and has given a lot of valuable lessons and i got a, got a lot of good examples for my children and uh, other people around me so um it, it's 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 a valuable process uh you definitely i was fortunate to find the right people at the right times um and i like to try to be that for people who do get introduced to me i've got a few clients who've done similar things as myself or on different the same path or were on the same path but have now steered their uh cruise ship into that other path and uh I'm one of them in fact probably going to be his first ironman's next year and I'm looking forward to helping him out even more. He's a great student, but he's been in the, some of the areas that I've been. He's gone to some of those places, and it's really pleasurable to work with people like that and help them be that mentor and get to know them at a better level and discover those those processes that a coach or a life coach actually can get. You know, he's brought it to me, not me bringing it to them. And then as he's brought that to me, I, he, I've opened up more to him, and it's he's like, oh, wow. You've done that too, yes. <laughs> oh, you've done that too, yes. And it, it, it's we have really good conversations when we go for a bike ride, put it that way. And I think that's what makes those early mornings much more easy and more enjoyable is when you can see the process and see the improvement in many areas of an individual's life. Okay, so bearing witness to that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's been great having you on the show. Been really insightful, super powerful stuff. I mean, I think that that anybody to choose that that chooses to do something as crazy as an Ironman competition is gonna gain some valuable lessons out of it. And we really appreciate you coming on the show to be able to share those lessons with the fail fighters out there that may or may not be thinking about doing something like this. So really appreciate having you on the show, man. Thank you very much, Kerry, and uh, to all those uh, fail fighters out there. Just remember, if you're gonna sign something, uh, do anything. Do it well or don't do it at all. Don't do it at all. Um, just real quick before we go, what cause would you like people to know about? So what's what's your mission in life right now? Just a, a quick uh, you know, soundbite for, for the listeners out there. If they want to follow you or if they want to be a part of what you're doing, 
Uh, what direction can you point them towards? Um, on Facebook is the Endurance Academy. Our website's being redone right now, so it's not going to be that accurate. On the charity front, uh, Newborns Vietnam and Heartboard, Heartbeat Vietnam. Okay, uh, Heartbeat Vietnam, and what's what's the website for that? Uh, heartbeatvietnam.org, I believe, or newbornsvietnam.org. Um, okay. Newborns is based in Da Nang, and Heartbeat Vietnam is here in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, Heartbeat Vietnam does heart surgeries for children in need because there's a huge bleeding list and uh, they basically about twelve thirteen hundred dollars will save a child's life uh newborns of vietnam are teaching neonatal medical care uh across the country now in the hanoi national university hospital as well as in denang and the highlands and they're teaching frontline care to nurses and doctors so they're getting uh uk standards into the local hospitals and doing a tremendous job so those are the two causes i support okay so newborns vietnam and heartbeat Vietnam.org. So if you guys are interested in uh, you know doing races or competitions like this and doing charity work at the same time, reach out to Todd on Facebook at the Endurance Academy, which is just it's spelled exactly like it sounds, the Endurance Academy. You could find it. You could get a coach, and I believe you're also available on trainingpeaks.com, correct? Correct, yeah. I'm on okay, that so coach there. If you guys want to coach with Todd, go to trainingpeaks.com and just search Todd Gilmore, and that's G-I-L-M-O-R-E. All right, Todd, thanks for being on the show. We'll catch you next time. Brilliant. Thank you very much. All right, Phil Fighters, lots to unpack there. That was a really good interview. He had a lot of interesting things to say. So the first thing that Todd had a lot to say about was consistency, preparation, and execution, which I love because regardless of what you're doing, be it training for a 140-mile endurance event or starting up a new venture, the most important elements are always going to reside in your ability to dedicate yourself fully to a specific goal and then to consistently practice and show up. Because if you don't, you're going to end up on the side of the road halfway through the race wishing you never would have started. Self-discipline really is everything. The next lesson we learn is that no matter how much of a badass you think you are, you got to stay humble. Because when Todd killed it in his first race and he got a big head on the next one, his results and his ego suffered. Keeping a level head and staying humble is where the real work comes into play, as well as the real results. Last but not least, the final and I think the most important key takeaway is that the only person you have to compete with is yourself. Endurance events and life, by definition, are these long, challenging events. Comparing yourself to others and holding yourself to other people's standards is really only a distraction, and instead of helping you out, might actually limit you in terms of the potential that you're capable of reaching. So by keeping your head up, your eyes forward, and consistently approving upon the you that you were yesterday, you can move forward in the direction of your dreams at a steady and accumulative pace. And with that being said, guys, we appreciate you coming on the show and being a part of what we do. See, our goal here at The Fail Fighters is to bring you one step closer to starting that project you've always dreamed about or overcoming your obstacles that are holding you back in the projects that you're currently in. So that's why each week we'll be bringing you more fail stories, more outlandish tales, and more fun facts and lessons. And that's why we're also going to be needing your help to like, comment, and rate The Fail Fighters podcast on the podcast store and to show us some love on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To bring you the most relevant content possible, we need to hear from you. So if there's a specific topic that you want to dive into, a special guest you'd like for us to have on the show, or some question that you're just dying to ask, throw up a question on our Fail Fighters Facebook page at www.facebook.com failfighters, and we'll respond to those as soon as possible. And with that being said, guys, once again, my name is Kerry, and we'll see you next time. Don't forget, keep failing forward.